It's all in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Isn't it uh, good to be praising God in the presence of God with the people of God? Okay. I was thinking, expect some excitement here. Let me invite you to open your copy of the Word of God with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Luke 5, as we talk this morning about the church and the never-ending challenge of telling the old, old story in new and engaging ways. We're looking at Luke 5, verses 36 to 39. And since you just sat down, you can remain seated. I'll read this for us as we read what Jesus has to say. It says that Jesus told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is better. Jesus liked to illustrate the truths that he taught with stories. We call them parables. They're word pictures of less familiar concepts or ideas that help us understand the truths that Jesus was trying to teach. And in a time when virtually all clothing was handmade, this story of sewing patches would have been very familiar. He uses two little stories about patching clothes and storing wine. And the, the clothes patching was something that everyone would, would know about because there would be patches everywhere. People made their clothing by hand. And so it wouldn't have been uncommon to see that. In fact, just every, about everyone would have known something about it, even how to do it. And Jesus says, no one tears up a new garment to make a patch for an old garment. Because that not only tears the new, but it won't match the old. And in Matthew and Mark, in their parallel to this saying, they add that uh, the new will shrink and pull away from the old, which is no longer capable of shrinking, of moving, of adapting, of flexing. And so they'll both be torn. In a similar situation, old wineskins. Wineskins were generally made out of animal skins, often goat skins. They weren't used to hold new wine because new wine is still fermenting. It's still producing gases. It's expanding. And an old wineskin would be brittle. It couldn't adapt the way a new, flexible wineskin could. And so if you put new wine in an old wineskin, as it expands, it will burst the skin, and the skin will be ruined, and the wine will be lost as well. So what was Jesus trying to tell us in these little stories? What point is Jesus trying to make here? Well, he was essentially explaining why his gospel of spiritual liberation was incompatible with the hidebound legalistic traditions of Judaism in general and Pharisaism 
in particular. They just weren't capable of receiving it. They weren't able to hear and respond. It's why the Pharisees couldn't accept it. In fact, they wouldn't even give it a fair hearing. That's what verse 39 means. Verse 39 says, No one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. Not because the old really is better, but because he doesn't want to try something new. In fact, the New American Standard renders it maybe a little more accurately. He says, the old is good enough. Good enough for me. I'm used to this. This is what I want. I don't want to try anything new. I don't want anything that's going to stretch me. I want to do what I've always done, the way I've always done it. And this Jesus fella, he's something new, and we can't have that. We get used to the way things are and we're reluctant to try something different. When Jesus told these stories, it was an indictment of the Pharisees who refused to listen to Jesus. But it's also a word of caution for us because churches can fall prey to the same kind of traditionalism that ensnared the Pharisees and many a church has through church history, brothers and sisters. William Barclay, in his commentary on this passage, says, There is in religious people a kind of passion for the old. Nothing moves more slowly than a church. The trouble with the Pharisees was that the whole religious outlook of Jesus was so startlingly new, they simply could not adjust to it. So Jesus is saying... Don't let your mind become like an old wineskin. That's a lesson for us. We can't afford to let our minds become like an old wineskin that can't receive, can't incorporate something new and fresh because God is always doing something new and fresh. The old, old story of the gospel never changes But souls will be lost if we close our minds to fresh and engaging ways to tell it. Barclay tells another story in his commentary about the writer Rudyard Kipling and the founder of the Salvation Army, General William Booth. They didn't know one another, but they found themselves on the same ship as Rudyard was on a a world tour, and Booth happened to be there. um, Rudyard Kipling was sort of opposed to the methods that Booth used to reach people for Christ. He used tambourines and, and a show and, and noise and all of that kind of thing, which apparently, Barclay says that Kipling's orthodox soul resented that kind of thing. Well, Kipling and Booth got to know one another on the voyage, and Kipling finally confessed to Booth that he disliked tambourines and all their kindred. And Booth looked at him and said, Young man, if I thought I could win one more soul for Christ by standing on my head and beating a tambourine with my feet, I'd learn how to do it. Now that's a flexible wineskin. Willingness to adapt for the purpose and call of God. To set aside our own desires, our own comfort to step outside of our comfort zone on behalf of lost souls. 
We've got to have that same mindset. If we're going to experience the vitality in our church that God wants us to have and that we want to have, we've got to be flexible like that. God has new wine to pour into us if we're flexible enough to receive it. In his biography of Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson quoted Jobs as saying, Great companies reinvent themselves from time to time. And certainly Jobs did that with Apple, grew it into the most valuable company in the world. Great companies reinvent themselves from time to time. And I suspect that great churches do too. So what might we have to do differently in the future to reach the next generation for Christ? We're already thinking about that. In fact, we've put together a team, the Long Range Strategic Planning Team, has been meeting with individuals and groups in the church now for a couple of months or more, talking to staff members, talking to various ones, and they're not finished yet. In fact, maybe this is a good place to announce that next Sunday during this time, they're going to be here to pray with you and dialogue with you and try to discern from you how we move forward without a gathering worship leader because we can't find one. Not for, not for failing to look, but we need to figure out what God has in mind for us moving forward. It probably involves, well, it definitely involves change. Aaron's not going to be around anymore. We've got change staring us in the face. Are we going to be flexible enough to adapt to that as a church, as a congregation, for the sake of the kingdom of God? What might we have to do differently in the future? But what do we need to be doing differently today to build a foundation of faith in our youth and children that will endure as they grow? One of the reasons we've invested in our children's ministry and our student ministry the way we have is because we want to help our own children and grandchildren, our own young people, to develop strong faith and values that they will retain as they move out of home and into young adulthood so that they won't leave those behind as they move on. In the worship bulletins upstairs, I'm not sure what it says in the one down here, but we've had an announcement going on about needing volunteers in kids' ministry on Sunday morning. And Helen tells me the response to that has not been very strong. Is that because we're not interested in building a strong foundation of faith in our children that will sustain? I hope not. We'll be bringing them into the service, and the older ones do need to be in the service. But if you're able to help, if you're able to invest, then talk to Helen. She needs you. Our kids need you. The Barna Research Group has discovered that six out of ten young people in the church will leave the church permanently or for an extended period of time starting around the age of 15. Sixty percent of our kids that's shocking. That's shameful, really. 
According to pollsters, this is more than just what they call a driver's license to marriage license joyride of distraction that youth in my generation, I suppose, used to experience. It's more than that. The Barna Research president, David Kinneman, after a five-year study, wrote a book entitled, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. And in that book, as a result of his research, he lists six reasons young people leave the church. I want to share those with you and say just a brief word or two about them as I go through them. The first is isolationism. One-fourth of 18 to 29-year-olds say church demonizes everything outside church, including the music, movies, culture, and technology that define their generation. So by extension, they, they feel demonized themselves. If the church demonizes the things that they're involved, the culture that surrounds them, because the church is too isolationistic. There's some truth in that accusation. You and I know there's evil in the world. There is evil in the world in abundance. Our kids know that too. Our young people don't miss that. They can see, they can hear, they can think. They're more capable than we sometimes give them credit for. But instead of isolating ourselves and trying to protect our children, keep, hold them back from being in the world, we need to teach them how to be redemptive influences in the world, to be salt and light, to change the world, to be in the world, not in some monastery somewhere, but not of the world, the way the Bible teaches. We've got to be in the world, not isolating ourselves, if we're going to impact the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Young people don't see that. They see us isolating ourselves and they leave us behind. Second on the list, shallowness. One-third of young people that were surveyed called the church boring. About a fourth say faith is irrelevant and Bible teaching is unclear. A fifth say God is absent from their church experience. Now we know that God is not absent because Jesus taught us where two or three are gathered together in His name. He is there in the midst of them. The divine Son of God, God the Son, is there. We know God is present. So we're apparently not sufficiently equipping the next generation to recognize God and to connect with God. Maybe it's because Bible teaching is too often unclear and church is too often boring. We're not engaging them sufficiently enough that they can see God in their midst. Wherever that may be the case, we need to be flexible enough to adjust and to adapt. About this faith being irrelevant, that's on us too. Because we're not showing the next generation how relevant, how essential, how indispensable faith is for living life. Because we don't treat it that way in how we live our life. We are condemned. We need to demonstrate that relationships with God and with others are the only things that are relevant. More than our status, more than our accomplishments, more than our stuff, more than anything else, relationship with God and relationship with others 
are the essential, important, relevant things in life. Don't wait until you're on your deathbed to realize that. Demonstrate it for the young people by your words and by your example. Number three, attitude of anti-science. Up to one-fifth of young people say the church is out of step on scientific developments and debate. And that was written before the pandemic came along. I'm sure the pandemic only made it worse because so much of the church was resistant to science and so taken in by pseudoscience and conspiracy theories and the like. But only those who are threatened by science are anti-science. Like the church in the days of Galileo and Copernicus. The church was afraid of what they were discovering, and so they suppressed them. They persecuted them. They didn't want to deal with that. Their faith was too weak to incorporate that, to think through that. We can't afford to be like that. I'm not threatened by science. I love science. I love data. I love analysis. I'm, by nature, an analytic thinker. And to me, true science informs faith rather than undermines faith. It would have in the days of Galileo and Copernicus if the church had been flexible enough to understand it and to explore what is it that this teaches us about God. God is much bigger than they ever thought, and they missed it because they tried to suppress it. A flexible wineskin can reconcile faith and science without bursting. And the church desperately needs to learn how to do that if we're going to keep the next generation. Number four on the list is sex. Do I have your attention now? They say the church is perceived as simplistic and judgmental when it comes to sex, partly because the polls tell us that young Christian singles are as sexually active as their unchurched friends. And many of them say they feel judged in the Christian context. But there's a difference between feeling judged and being judged. We had, uh, in my last church, there was a young couple, started coming for a while, was getting involved, they were getting to know people, and all of a sudden they disappeared and uh, without a word. And I, I started asking around, where did they go? What happened? And finally someone told me, well, they were living together, but they weren't married, and they felt like they were being looked at differently, felt like they were being judged here in the church. I didn't even know. I had no idea. I think most of the rest of our folks didn't either. You see, conviction of sin can seem a lot like feeling judged. And I suspect that was the case with them and with so many others who are unwilling to come into the church because they're convicted of sin and they feel judged. What can we do to help them feel more welcome? We do have to, as a church, uphold God's standards for sex and marriage, certainly. Jesus taught that a man shall leave his father and mother, be united with his wife. Those two will be one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. That's a lifetime marriage relationship, monogamous, forever, And it's as simple as that. Now, is that simplistic? It is. But it's clear, isn't it? 
That's the clear teaching of the Scripture from the words of Jesus himself. And we're obligated to uphold that standard while at the same time extending grace to those who fall short of it. That's the part we too often forget. I confess to you, when I first saw this list, I thought, you know, do young people really want to hear their pastor talk about sex? And then I realized, you know, young people really want to hear anybody talk about sex. So maybe we need to do more of that, more teaching on that. Number five, we're moving quickly through, exclusivity. 30% of young people feel the church is too exclusive. We live in a pluralistic, multicultural world. And they feel forced to choose between their faith and their friends. But we want to be inclusive. We want to spread the message far and wide that everyone is welcome. We're glad that you're here. We want you to bring your friends. We want to include you in what we're doing. In that sense, all are welcome. But it takes flexibility and tolerance to be able to do it, church. Now, we are firm in our conviction, as I said last week, that the Bible is the Word of God. And what the Bible calls sin, we don't have any choice but to call sin ourselves. And we will continue to call sinners to repentance. We have all kinds of sinners in this church. This church has always been made up of sinners since its very beginning. But we call those sinners to repentance just as Jesus did. Jesus held up the standards of God, but he called people to repentance, and the sinners loved him. Remember? They weren't put off by that because Jesus loved them. That's why. And they knew it. They recognized it. They felt it. Young people aren't feeling that from the church today. And we need to do a better job of showing them that we love them that we want them, that we desperately need them for the kingdom of God's sake. Finally on the list is doubt. The church, they say, one-third of young people say the church is not a safe place to express doubts. And a fourth of them have serious doubts that they want to discuss. Well, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, anyone who thinks is sometimes going to doubt. That's the way it works. Now, the church, again, is, too often has a weak faith that's afraid to, to be confronted with doubt because they don't know what to do with it. But listen, your doubts are safe here. In fact, I would argue that faith cannot exist apart from doubt. Because faith is trusting in something that you can't fully explain, that you can't fully track out, that you can't write out the equations for. That's faith. Without, without doubt, there is no faith. If we, if we don't think that, you know, this, I could be wrong here, but God says this is how it works, so I'm going to trust it and step out in faith. So you and your doubts are welcome here. In fact, I rather suspect that you have no doubt that, you, that has ever come upon you that someone else here hasn't already had and dealt with and figured out a way to move forward in spite of. So there are people that can help you with your doubts. So bring them on. Well, Kinnaman says the proper response to this exodus of young people from the church is not to ignore the problem and 
Hope that they'll grow out of it. It's also not to use all means possible to make churches appeal to teens and young adults because he says that excludes older members and, quote, builds the church on the preferences of young people and not on the pursuit of God. So the solution he prescribes instead is intergenerational ministry. Intergenerational ministry. He says, in many churches, this means changing the metaphor from simply passing the baton to the next generation to a more functional, biblical picture of a body. That is, the entire community of faith across the entire lifespan working together to fulfill God's purpose. Now, can we at Central Baptist Church in Johnson City, Tennessee, can we do that? Absolutely, I believe we can if, if we can keep enough flexibility in our wineskin to adapt to new and fresh movements of the Spirit of God, whatever that might look like. This person's tradition may be old. This person's tradition may be new, but their traditions nonetheless. Do we have to set those aside to be flexible enough to get in on what God's trying to do with all of us together? Now, you might say, well, this church is 153 years old, and it is. But the church is 2,000 years old. In those terms, we're not a very old church at all. We're far too young to be old wineskins already. So let's remember that. Let's be flexible enough to try new ways to invest in relationships with God, with one another, and with the world. And I guarantee God will bless it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us. We pray that you'd forgive us for our resistance to change, our reluctance to try new things. We pray that you would help us to be bold and take risks for the sake of your kingdom. God, if we have to learn to stand on our heads and play tambourines with our feet, I pray we'd be willing to do it in order to bring souls to Christ. God, speak to us in this moment. Give us your wisdom, your direction, your discernment, and call us to you anew and afresh. For your sake and for your glory, we pray it all in Jesus' name.